Welcome tonight to a special study on eschatology, uh, just to dig a little bit deeper into the subject and hopefully, hopefully see if we can get a little clarity. I was hoping to do three parts, but that was proven a little ambitious, so we're just going to do two parts tonight, so I'll do a part one, we'll have a, have a break, that kind of thing, and then uh, come back and we'll hit part two. So we'll be out 10, 11 o'clock, something nice and early. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this dear church. We thank you for the truth of your word and how much it encourages us and strengthens us, edifies us in truth, uh, strengthens our believing, and gives us great hope. And that's what this subject of eschatology is all about, is giving us hope for the future, to know that you are sovereign and in, in charge. And if we're, if we're Christians, no matter what eschatological position we hold, if we're Christians, we all look to the future with great hope because you are the sovereign God. You are the one who controls all things and brings them to your perfect end. And even if any of us are wrong about uh, matters of, of the end times and, and uh, don't have everything exactly in place, we know that you hold us fast and you will bring us to the end because you love us, because you've chosen us from before the foundation of the world, and because you will glorify yourself through preserving us faithful to the end. We thank you for that, and we ask for your help as we uh, walk through some passages tonight. pray that you would help me to be clear, and you'd help us to understand well and to be encouraged by the passages that we read. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, this is the first, uh, first time I have addressed this subject of eschatology in a, in a focused way, anyway, uh, in my pastorate here at Grace Church. And I believe it's not going to be the last time, which means this is not going to be, tonight is not going to be the final word on the subject, not by any stretch. Uh, it, is a, it is a staggering and humbling endeavor to try to boil down what the Bible has to say about eschatology and put it into one or two or eight or ten messages, whatever that uh, number is, because it is, um, I, I have found this in my study of Scripture uh, time and time again, that any particular passage of Scripture, it just seems you don't exhaust the depth of it. There's no way to exhaust the depth and the details, and then think about all those details expanding out and trying to hold all those details together. It is a very challenging thing to do. So, we won't cover everything there is to cover tonight, and if your question isn't answered, it's probably because either I didn't have time or I don't know, so we, uh, we just have to address the subject with a great amount of uh, humility and patience. The subject is coming up now because in our study in the Gospel of Luke on Sunday mornings, it's raising the issues, and uh, I'm very thankful that it is raising the issues. It's a, it's a such a wonderful study to track with Jesus through uh, his life and ministry and to follow along in his teaching and learn from him. And as we've come into Luke 17, we see that Jesus' teaching brings this issue of eschatology to the fore. Uh, he's going to have more to say about the end times uh, in Luke 21, the Olivet Discourse. So we've got more to learn. Jesus has more to teach us, and uh, we're eager to get there. As I said, I'm going to cover the ground in, uh, I, was, I was thinking three sessions, I'm going to do, try to do two sessions tonight, uh, separated by uh, roughly 10 minute break or something like that. So in the first session, I will outline the three major eschatological positions, premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. And then in the second session, um, I'm going to provide an overview of the premillennial position that the elders here at Grace Church teach 
The session that I wanted to get to and that I'll come to as the Lord gives us opportunity in the future, I want to give evidence for the case uh, that, you know, the evidence from Scripture and a, a way of thinking from Scripture that builds the case for premillennialism. A lot of, uh, there are a lot of misconceptions out there about where premillennialism come from, comes from and how we build the case that it's all about Revelation chapter 20, uh, because that, that is where the term millennium is used several times. Uh, but that really is not the case. That's not how we build a case for premillennialism. This is a tongue twister, isn't it? That's going to be tough tonight. But we don't build the case out of Revelation 20. Uh, that's kind of culminates, the, the, the case is culminated there. But the case, as I've tried to say throughout our study uh, in Luke 17, the case really does start with Genesis chapter 1 and the issue of dominion. Nevertheless, I'll, I'll punt that third session uh, to another time. We'll come back to it. First, uh, I want to make some preliminary comments just by way of introduction. I guess that there are a, a number of reactions uh, in our church to the doctrine of last things, probably in every church it's that way, probably in every single uh, local church, there are a number of different reactions. And some have very little exposure to the subject of eschatology, and with little exposure they range from those who are curious and wanting to know more, eager to learn, uh, some who are contented some who feel like whatever little they do know is enough for them. Uh, what they understand, that's enough. Some in the local church are settled in their eschatological views. They're firm and unbending. Others are less so. Others are more flexible. Some are very eager to talk with others about eschatology, and some are quite passionate about talking about issues of eschatology. Others are very reluctant to talk about the subject. I think some are even squeamish about the subject. We can all sense that there is a lack of consensus among Christians on these matters. There's a lack of agreement among our favorite Bible teachers. Some of our teachers, uh, and I'm talking about the kind of celebrated or renowned teachers, some of them sound like they think eschatology is a litmus test for Christianity. Uh, what your position is determines your orthodoxy or determines fellowship based on agreement about end times doctrines. Other Bible teachers and I, I think this seems actually more prominent in our day. They make it sound like eschatological beliefs belong in the category of adiaphora. Adiaphora means matters of indifference or matters of little consequence. And that comes out of, I think, what's been a prevalent ecumenical spirit. On the good side of an ecumenical spirit, there's a desire to collaborate, uh, to recognize that there are Christians in other traditions uh, grow, and grow in other traditions. But on the bad side, that, uh, that ecumenical desire is to build big, kind of outwardly successful movements and conferences and all, all of that. So this subject, all that to say, this subject can make us feel a little bit uneasy. What do we do about this? What approach do we take when we feel uneasy? What does the Bible say, we should ask? What does the Bible say about matters of doctrine and practice? Is the Bible silent about issues like this? Uh, you obviously know the answer, but let's turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and just remind ourselves of what we're doing and why we're doing it. Ephesians chapter 4. This is a text that I don't shy away from reminding you from time to time. I, I absolutely love Ephesians chapter 4 uh, because Ephesians chapter 4 sets the whole paradigm for what we do in the local church and why we do it. But in Ephesians 4, here's the purpose and privilege of the local church is to do exactly what we're doing tonight. 
Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In a mutual and collective spirit of humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager as we are to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, Paul tells us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And he doesn't leave us guessing as to what he means by the unity of the Spirit. He actually goes right into it in the next verses. There is, verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Can you spot the subject of eschatology in that list? Do you see it there? Eschatology is the study of last things, the end times. And so doctrines that pertain to resurrection and the end of the world and final judgment, the millennium, the eternal state, any of that found there in Ephesians 4, 4, 6? Yes, right? Definitely the matter of hope. Hope, which is always, hope is always forward-looking. Paul writes in Romans 8, 23 to 25, he says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So because we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly, because we wait patiently in hope, for the consummation of our full salvation, which Paul says in Ephesians or Romans 8, is the redemption of our bodies, is the resurrection. Hope stands out in that list in Ephesians 4, 4 to 6. I could probably make a really good case, you probably make a good case too, that all those doctrines in Ephesians 4, 4 to 6 are in play in this matter of eschatology. But let's, let's keep reading about our task here. In verse chapter 4, verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But they did, he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended, or, or it could be into the lower regions, into the heart of the earth, like as in death and burial. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So Christ has ascended. This is an eschatological subject. It's an eschatological view that sees his victory and sees our own giftedness in our church coming because he's distributed gifts because he's won the victory. So he's ascended, he's ascended far above all the heavens, and as we know from his words in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So he has that authority in order that he might fill all things. God put all things under Christ's feet, Ephesians 1, He gave Christ his head over the body to the church. The church is his body, Ephesians 1, the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. And as the head, 
the sovereign authority over the church universal and the Lord over each one of his local churches in particular, the risen Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ wants us to know, wants you to know, wants me to know and understand all that he's revealed from Genesis to Revelation. What passage of scripture would you say is unimportant, irrelevant, doesn't really matter, part of the adiaphora, part of the things that are in matters of indifference. That's not how he wants us to think about any section of scripture, not about any doctrine. In fact, he wants us to be, not only to know and understand it, he wants us to be filled by all that he has revealed to us. Filled, uh, you could find reference to that in Ephesians 5 in particular, but it's, it's the idea of not being so um, you know, filled with knowledge and understanding in order that it controls us, in order that the knowledge actually influences not just the way we think, but the way we behave, the way we speak, the way we prioritize, the way we live life. He wants us to be controlled by everything that he's revealed. He wants us to be motivated by it, provoked by it, encouraged by it, spurred along by all of his revealed truth. That's a key fact in this concept of filling. So Ephesians 4.11 says that Christ has equipped local churches with teachers. We, you're familiar with this, but let's, let's read this. In Ephesians 4.11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Apostles and prophets, any of those still around today? No, the, the answer is no. <laughs> That's the right answer. There are other answers, but the right answer is no. The apostles, the New Testament prophets, the apostles a limited number. Uh, the 12, and then Paul, one untimely born. They had the, the gifts, the signs of an, their apostleship. All that has ended, all that has ended when Paul died, when John died. So the apostles, the prophets, there were New Testament prophets at local church level. Uh, but once the canon of scripture was completed, no more need for that particular specific revelation to local churches. Now we all have the same, we're reading out of the same sheet of music that we're reading out of the same book. So the apostles, the prophets, their ministry is past. Their ministry is complete and whole and contained here in the pages of the Old and New Testaments. It's all there. And so the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers, they take from this book, take from this completed canon, and they work this into people. So the evangelists being those who teach the church uh, with regard to discerning false gospels and true, teaching the church to discern, teaching the the church to evangelize, and oftentimes we refer to those evangelists as apologists today. Let's say Justin Peters falls in that category of an apologist, an evangelist. Um, shepherds and teachers, those two gifts joined uh, together very closely. They're governed by the same article, and so some people translate it shepherd teachers like with a hyphen. It's like the same gift, but it's actually shepherds and teachers. They're just very closely related. Every, every shepherd teaches and every teacher, in, you know, church gifted teacher, Holy Spirit gifted teacher has a shepherding aspect to his teaching. So Christ has given these gifts, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the no of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, 
We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So if eschatology is one of the doctrines that God has revealed, and it is, well then in our local churches, we don't treat this doctrine or any other doctrine as adiaphora, as a matter of indifference, as a matter of little consequence or little import. It is the duty of pastors and elders in the local church to instruct the church, to equip the church, that the church might be built up, unified, mature, discerning and stable, strong and healthy, and able to protect itself and build itself up in love. It's one of the key doctrines. So that means just a a couple of maybe three, three things to say here as we get started into this. First of all, we don't want to allow ourselves to fall into the temptation of indifference or carelessness about eschatology or any other doctrine in the Bible. We can't say, as some have jokingly said, I'm not premillennial, amillennial, or postmillennial. I'm panmillennial because it's all going to pan out in the end. We, we can't say, that's, I, I get the humor, I understand the sentiment, but I cannot encourage as a pastor that kind of attitude of agnosticism. That's not okay. For some, that can be a a mask for indolence and laziness. Maybe a a sinful indifference about, really about truth that Christ revealed to us. It's not okay to think that way. In some cases, I think talking like that can even be a bit prideful. Maybe maybe judging what God has revealed is, is unclear. And I hear this all the time when people deal with topics of eschatology. They say, well, it's not clear. This is a highly symbolic and completely confusing book or whatever, the, whatever they're studying. And I, I just have to caution people and say, listen, it's, it's not the book. It's not what God revealed that is unclear. If it's unclear, the fault is in me or us. The fault is in our lack of understanding. So it's, it's not the fault of scripture. It's never the fault of scripture. God didn't stumble or stutter in what he said. He revealed it so that we could understand it. And if there's a lack of understanding on our part, well, let's just, let's just get in, stay in the seat and keep studying until we get it. So we don't want to judge what God has revealed as, any, as unclear, as confusing. We don't, want to, we don't want to cast any aspersions on him or the scripture. We don't want to refuse to, we, we, we do want to admit where we're ignorant or where we, we're lacking. We do want to be humble and and say that, boy, I, I need to keep learning. I need to keep studying. Let's, let's do that. Let's, let's have that kind of an attitude, a humble, teachable spirit. I don't know, um, people that have this kind of agnostic view about eschatology, do, is there any other doctrine of scripture that we're okay with that with? Agnostic about maybe the deity of Christ. Is that, is that okay? Agnostic about the, the Trinity or agnostic about the you know, the inerrancy of scripture. Would you say, I, want to, I don't want to get too technical about theories of the atonement. I mean, there's the ransom theory, moral example theory, Christus Victor theory, penal substitution. They've all got kernels of truth. So I'm pan atonement. You know, I just, I just embrace them all. I mean, maybe that sounds magnanimous to some, but only, only one of those theories saves. It's not a theory. It's truth. So let's just enter into all these subjects, whether it's this subject of eschatology or whether it's any other theology, any other aspect of theology, let's, we can all lack confidence in what's familiar and that's okay. What's not okay is to shrink away and say, I'm not going to deal with it. 
What's not okay is to pretend like we know or be lazy or anything like that. We need to, even though we all can feel uncomfortable about tension that exists, like we can all feel apprehensive about taking up the study of a big complex subject, we just need to become a little more familiar, that's all. Just, just become more familiar and that's what we're doing tonight. So good on you for being here, welcome. We just need to take steps forward toward a better understanding if we'll eat that proverbial elephant one bite at a time, we will swallow, digest, and we'll discover elephant doesn't taste good, but we'll take up benefit from the nutrients and we will move forward in strength. So please, no eschatological agnosticism in this local church, okay? Can we, can we agree to do that together? Brings up a second point. I want to say that to be members of Grace Church, the elders have not required and don't think it's wise to require complete doctrinal alignment when it comes to certain issues, and eschatology is, is one of those issues. Our 1689 London Baptist Confession does not delineate a particular eschatological position as a test of orthodoxy. We think it's wise. Uh, that's wise to practice when it comes to church membership because we realize, recognize Christians seeking membership at Grace Church, they'll come from all different backgrounds, come from other local churches, churches that don't align with our local church, and that's fine. All we ask is that our members come with a credible profession of true faith in Jesus Christ, basic agreement on basic doctrines that are put in our articles of faith, agreement on the basic agreement on the nature of the church, humble, teachable spirit, growing, maturing member of a growing, maturing local church. That's what we want us all to be together. But that's not to say that we consider eschatology or Say, say debates between Calvinism and Arminianism or cessationism and continuationism. We, can, we consider those things important. They all, they all matter. So eschatology is one of those. It's not a free-for-all. And, and we don't consider, as elders, we don't consider these doctrines to be, as I said, we don't consider them to be adiaphora. The elders do take a position. We take a position on, on all these different issues. And on this, on eschatology in particular, we take the position of the pre-tribulational, pre-millennial perspective. So we don't require uniformity and conformity to that position for membership uh, to be a thriving member of this church, but we do require conformity to that position for anybody who's going to teach or exercise leadership at Grace Church and influence at Grace Church. No one is allowed to teach, knowingly teach from any of our platforms or of teaching or influence any other position but the pre-tribulational, pre-millennial perspective. We don't want to be mean about this or anything, but we're not budging on the doctrine. This is the church that you've come to. This is the church that we are called to be overseers of. We're not going to budge on any other doctrine, by the way, that's outlined in the What We Teach document that's posted on our website. We're just, we're just not going to do that. We're not, not going to make an apology for it. You know, we're not going to make apology for the, for the teachers that we affirm, uh, the, the different uh, names that we affiliate with and all that. We have good reasons for uh, promoting and commending to you who we promote and commend. And so if you have questions about that, by all means, come and ask. And it's totally fine. We understand that uh, some, names, some names are like a lightning rod and cause different reactions. Uh, we get that. We also, as elders, and the reason we're saying some of this is because we are wary of anybody whose influence enters into the local church to divide the church, whether that's uh, intentional or not. If it's, I mean, hopefully it's not. You know, we want to talk to people and talk to them about um, whether their attitude, lifestyle, or doctrine. We want to talk to them if they're causing division. I mean, I certainly don't want to be the cause of division in any local church. I would never, uh, it's just be unconscionable to me. 
So anybody who refuses to submit to the elders' instruction and correction, we're concerned about that. It's happened in our church before, it's happened in every local church before, and that's what elders are there for, is far, partly for the protection of the flock. It's in faithfulness to Christ our Lord, it's in love for his sheep. We simply won't tolerate divisiveness at all on any of these, on any of these levels. But we don't, we don't think it needs to be like that when it comes to discussing matters of theology. We, there's a certain spirit that we can engage these matters in and engage the questions in. And you know when someone's trying to, to, to press you into service for their view or, or whatever, and you know when people are just openly sharing something that they rejoice in or they're trying to you know, just discuss something that they're confused by or something they're excited by. Uh, we understand all that. We just don't want there to be division. So finally, let me give a third point by way of introduction. Having set what we believe to be wise, reasonable boundaries for the study of any subject in Scripture, as Paul said, we're not going to shrink back from declaring to you anything that's profitable, Acts 20.20. We're going to teach you in public and from house to house, and we intend to declare to you, Acts 20.27, we intend to declare the whole counsel of God. We obviously can't do that in one night, one weekend, one year. It's a lifetime that we do this together, that we move together as a church. And so over that lifetime, we teach publicly and from house to house everything that's profitable, the whole counsel of God. So we want to engage in this study together as we would with any other study with eager enthusiasm and excitement and joy. It's what 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God. And what is it? Profitable. All of it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. If our Lord took the trouble to say it and to teach it, if our Lord has gifted his local church with teachers, if our Lord died on the cross to purchase us for his own possession so that he might teach us and share divine truth with us and rejoice, us, rejoice to bring us to the Father and for us to glorify the Father and rejoice in the Father with him, well, then let's mirror back his excitement, his joy by taking up any subject that he gives to us in the word. Okay, enough introduction, all right? Enough introduction. Let's talk about eschatology. And I want to take you into the heart of the debate by, by turning to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. And I'm going to try to present three positions, three different eschatological positions. And I hope that as I present these positions that I'm doing them justice and being fair. The chief difference between the major positions of eschatology, and there are three major eschatological perspectives. As I said, there's premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. The difference between them has to do with how to understand the millennium revealed in Revelation 20. That's a key difference. Obviously, there is a, a system of thinking that goes into each one of those systems or views of the eschaton, but this is where we can get a good view of how that looks. Millennium is the Latin term that means 1,000. The Greek word is kilia, and so the early premillennialists, like what we believe in our church, were called kiliasts because they believed in a thousand-year reign. So the question is, when we come to Revelation 19 and 20, especially there in Revelation 20, does kilia, the Greek term for a thousand, does it refer to a literal 1,000 years as we understand years? Or is kilia used more symbolically to refer to a long or extended period of time? That's really the nature of the debate. Obviously more to it. Some will come to, some we won't, but 
That's the nature of it. Is 1,000 years, the millennium referred to in Revelation 20, is that a literal 1,000 years? Can we set our calendars by that? Or is it more of a symbolic uh, representation of a long period of time and a different nature of time? You think about uh, expressions like myriads of myriads when it refers to angels. Myriad is, you know, can, can refer to thousands. And so we're talking about when it says myriads, are we meant to like calculate that or are we meant to just say, it's just talking about a lot of angels. So we can understand why people would have this disagreement. So first let's do, as we start this, a little reading. Starting in Revelation 19, verse 11. John says, then I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God. Eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. He seized the dragon, the, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I also or also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life, reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. 
And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. The fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had, received, who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what's written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So how do premillennialists, all millennialists and post-millennialists understand that section differently? It's a good test case. Premillennialists would say that they take the text in its plainest sense as it's read as referring to the future describing a sequence of events. To us, premillennialists, that's how it reads, as a sequence of events. We're not wooden literalists. Please don't make the, that false charge against us. That, um, you know, we do understand symbology. We do understand figurative language. But that, to us, is the plain sense. That's the plain sense of interpretation. We understand you don't take a great big thick iron chain and wrap up a spirit called Satan, and bind him and throw him into a big, dark pit. That's, that's not what that's trying to say. We understand that. But we do see that there's some kind of binding going on there, some kind of a limitation going on there, that that spirit, Satan, who is in one place at one time, because he's not an infinite spirit, he's in one place at one time, and he is not allowed to get out. Okay, so don't make the mistake of saying that we're wooden literalists, and we don't understand figures of speech and symbols and all the rest. We do. We see this phrase, you notice it there, then I saw. John saying, then I saw, then I saw. It's repeated throughout Revelation to advance the reader through John's visions. Kai Edan, Kai Edan, that's the Greek. And it's a, it's a formula. It's a formula that helps to move the narrative forward. And so what we see here are two separate battles. There's the battle of Armageddon in Revelation 19, 11 and following. And then there's one final feudal invasion in Revelation 20, 7 through 9 that's patterned really on the previous uh, surrounding of Jerusalem. So the second coming of Christ, this is what makes us pre-millennial, the second coming of Christ occurs before the millennial kingdom. That's the pre, it's coming, Christ comes before the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom occurs before the general resurrection and the final judgment of the, new, the creation of the new heavens and new earth. The millennial kingdom ends after the judgment. In see in Revelation 21.1 opens up with another, then I saw a Kai Edon marker. Then I saw a new heaven, a new earth for the first heaven, the first earth had passed away, the sea was no more. So we enter into a different realm, a different, um, I wouldn't say realm, different uh, reality of the new heavens and new earth. Premillennialists believe that Jesus revealed some new truths to John 
like the millennial kingdom is going to last for 1,000 years. That this earthly, visible kingdom over which Christ reigns physically on earth in his resurrected body with his saints in their resurrected bodies and then a saved Israel in their natural bodies entering into the millennium, those that have been uh, that made it through the tribulation, they will be there with Christ for a thousand years. That's how we understand it. Satan will be bound. Resurrected saints will rule on earth with Christ. And this will occur between the second coming and the final judgment, etc. Okay. This helps us understand prophecies that have described an earthly restored kingdom of David in which Christ rules on David's throne. For us, we see that this fulfills all the prophecies and the promises that God made to Israel. We see that this ushers in an unprecedented period of righteousness and peace and blessing. And yet we still see that Jesus has to, in that time, rule with a rod of iron. Why is that? Because men still sin during this time, which seems inconsistent with the new heavens and the new earth where sin and death are abolished forever. So, there is this sin, there's this need to rule the rod of iron, which to us says there's an intermediate kingdom between here and the eternal state. Well, I'm gonna give short shrift to the premillennial view because in the next session, I'll kind of be going through a little timeline about that, but uh, way more to say, but I wanna introduce the other two views which don't read the text in the same way that premillennials do. Amillennialism and postmillennialism. Can I just say all-mill and post-mill and let that be that? Okay, because I am, it's like a Dr. Seuss book. You know, I'm starting to <laughs> twist my tongue. So both the all-mill and post-mill perspectives see Revelation 20 as repeating Revelation 19, albeit from a different perspective. Looking at, it's, it's one singular event, but looking at it from a different view, a different angle, so to speak. So Revelation 19, Revelation 20, they describe the same thing, which is the Gog-Magog invasion that culminates in the Battle of Armageddon. Both Amil and Postmill see the binding of Satan in Revelation 21 to 3 as something Christ did when he died on the cross. They don't see the binding of Satan as a future event, but as a present reality. They believe Satan is currently bound in the sense that he can no longer deceive the nations, um, no longer keep them from believing the gospel, even though he still roams freely which is what allows us, they would say, to, to, to embark on great missions endeavors and do worldwide missions because Satan's been bound and prevented from clouding nations from the gospel. Both Amil and Postmill see the first resurrection, Revelation 25 and 6 is referring to salvation as meaning, essentially meaning born again, regenerated, having eternal life. To be clear, they don't they don't believe the reverse resurrection is about raising dead bodies to life, like material bodies, raising them to life. They say, this is not a physical resurrection, it's a spiritual resurrection. The physical resurrection, according to Amil and Postmill, happens after the thousand year or the millennial period is over. Revelation 20, 12 and 13, I say that refers to John 5, 29, which says, those who've done good, they, are, they go to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil go to the resurrection of judgment. Premill also teaches a general resurrection of the wicked and the righteous, but unlike premill, amill and postmill don't teach the rapture of the church. They don't teach that the first resurrection is physical, bodily resurrection, 
but rather for both Amil and Postmill, the first resurrection is spiritual and only the second resurrection is physical. That's not what premills believe. They believe both of those. When it uses the term resurrection, that's a term that means bodily resurrection, physical bodily resurrection. Both Amil and Postmill teach the second coming of Christ occurs after the millennium, after the millennium. And Here's where we kind of come to some differences. So you could, you could really say ah-mill and post-mill really are both post-mill. They both believe that the second coming of Christ occurs after the millennial period. But they diverge here. Further areas of agreement, but for our purposes, I'm just going to draw your attention to where these two perspectives diverge. First, amillennialism. Amill teaches that Christ returns at the end of the millennium according to Revelation 20, verse 7. Remember, they see Revelation 20 as repeating Revelation 19, but from a different perspective and giving new information. So after the millennial period is over, at the end of the church age, Christ destroys the wicked at the battle of Armageddon. Everyone is resurrected. Christ enters into judgment with the wicked. He casts them all, all the wicked into the lake of fire, and the righteous enter into the new heavens and the new earth. So what do they think the millennium is? Some Amils believe the millennium is being enjoyed right now by the church here on earth. In the church age, all the promises of the Old Testament and the New are currently being enjoyed spiritually by the church because they believe the church has replaced Israel. They still see a people of Israel, nation of Israel, but they just believe that all those promises are yes and amen in Christ. Others, other Amils see the millennium happening in heaven right now, right now for any resurrect, anybody who is, any Christian who has died in the Lord goes straight to heaven and they are enjoying the millennial reign of Christ right now. It's an ongoing reality for those who participate in the first resurrection, which by the way is not a bodily, not a physical, but a spiritual resurrection. So believers who die and go to heaven, Revelation 20 verse 4, that's what they think. And those believers die, they go to heaven, they reign with Christ, and that's happening in heaven only, not on the earth kingdom is a spiritual reality only, not a physical reality. So there's no earthly reign of the Messiah. There's no visible kingdom here on earth. Anything visible and earthly awaits the new heavens and the new earth. And they see the millennial kingdom as happening right now, either on earth through the church or in heaven. Uh, But it's all happening during the church age uh, between Christ's first and second comings. So I just want to clear this up. Ah, millennial. It's a bit of a misnomer since ah is, is an alpha privative. It negates the word millennial, like to say no millennium, making it sound like ah millennialists don't believe in a millennium. It's not true. They do. They believe in a millennium. They just define it as I hope you've heard. Uh, I've been clear about that. They define it quite differently. They see its nature as fundamentally spiritual rather than earthly or visible. Here's where post mills diverge from ah mills. Postmillennialism is what is called a preterist position. Preterist comes from the Latin praeter, which means past. It refers to the view that almost all biblical prophecy was fulfilled in the past. So when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in AD 70, pretty much everything was wrapped up there. Many things wrapped up there. So everything from Revelation 6.1 through Revelation 19.21 fulfilled at the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So Postmill teaches that Revelation 20 begins the church age with the binding of Satan. So everything's wrapped up in Revelation 19 at the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and then we get into Revelation 20 and the church age begins. So binding of Satan, preventing him from deceiving the nations, allows the church to proliferate the gospel with great success 
By success, they mean, yes, there are conversions, but also the Christianizing of the world, Christianizing of institutions and Christianizing of the land. So you'll find a number of post mills, though not all of them, but a number of them hold to theonomy or Christian reconstructionism because they want to see a Christianizing of all society, all structures in society. So like all mill, the millennium happening right now, second coming of Christ is going to happen after the millennium is over, because they Christianize the world, many people are saved, the gospel goes forth, and then at some point, un- unspecified, undefined period of time, that millennium, and some post mills consider us in the millennium right now, and some say, no, it's not yet, but it's hard to determine when that starts. But there's a Christianizing, and then at the end of that, there's a brief period of Satan not being bound, let loose, as we see in Revelation 20. And then Christ, when, his, when he comes in the second coming, he destroys Satan then, and we enter into the eternal state. So it's very unlike Amil, because the millennium is not happening in heaven only for the post-mill. It's happening on earth. It's happening through the church. As it advances by the success of the gospel, takes over the institutions, structures of the world, many people saved, growing, growing, growing. Unlike, unlike amillennialism, for post-millennialism, the millennium is happening here on earth. And that's kind of where we do share as premillennials. We appreciate that because we also share there is an earthly element to this millennial kingdom. It's, it's got to be taking place here on earth. It's got so many prophecies to fulfill. But um, post-mills see that there is a, the millennium is occurring either, either now or in you know, the future, but it will be happening in and through the church by the advances of the success of the gospel that will eventually take over the institutions and the structures of the world. So here's what, here's what Greg Bonson says, and uh, this is just to illustrate that. Post-millennialism, as the name implies, holds that one, Christ will return subsequent to the millennium, which two, represents a period, which will see growth and maturation of righteousness, peace, and prosperity for Christ's kingdom on earth, visibly represented by the church, through the gradual conversion of the world to the gospel, as well as a period for the glory and vindication of the saints in heaven. Number three, the return of Christ will synchronize with the general resurrection and general judgment at the end of the church age. Therefore, number four, the millennium or kingdom of Christ is a present reality spanning the interadventual age. Some postmillennialists have used the eschatological vocabulary in such a way that the millennium represents the latter day publicly discernible prosperity in the in, in, in interadventual uh, kingdom. Number five, the specific nature of the millennial kingdom on earth will be the international prosperity of the church, new Israel. So they see the church as the new Israel, replacing Israel. Its growth through the conversion of the world by the sword of the spirit and its influence in society and culture. Thus, six, The Old Testament prophecies of prosperity for the kingdom are both figuratively and literally interpreted according to the demands of the context, both local and wider, as pointing ahead, not simply behind the church age, to a restored Jewish kingdom or the eternal state, thus rendering the visible church on earth something of a parenthesis for the most part. But to the visible prosperity of Christ's established kingdom on earth, climaxing in the consummated glory of the eternal state. So there's continuity between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church, which... Greg Bonson says, is the new Israel. 
which will eventually include um, the fullness of converted physical Israel grafted back into the people of God. And then finally, number seven, over the long range, the world will experience a period of extraordinary righteousness and prosperity as the church triumphs in the preaching of the gospel and discipling the nations through the supernatural agency of the Holy Spirit. However, the release of Satan at the very end of the age will bring apostasy from these blessed conditions. That last point, I mean, I don't expect you to write all that down or get all that, but that last point about over the long range, I want to I make it clear that post, you know, some people have, tri- have said or uh, criticized post-millennialism because they see it as a eschatology that, that is unrealistic based on current events. So it's, there's this, there's this gradual growth and winning over the nations to the gospel and everybody's becoming Christians and all the institutions are Christianized and isn't this wonderful? And so many people say, well, the 20th century wasn't such a great one for you, was it? Right? I mean, there were more people killed in the 20th century than I think in all the previous centuries combined. And that's true. But post-mills say... That's not a problem because they think in, in, in ranges of long, long periods of time. So just because we see a dip doesn't mean we're not going to go up again. And so it's kind of like our sanctification. Our sanctification is not a straight line upward trajectory. It, is a, it grows by fits and starts, and there are dips, and there are rises, and there are dips and arises. But the trajectory in our sanctification is growth. The post-mills say the same thing about their eschatology. So they're untroubled or unconcerned when, when we point to, you know, what's happening in history or what's going on in the world around us. Um, long periods of time are required for this to eventuate the immediate 20th century's deadliness. That's not really the critique that anybody, re- that we really want to bring to this view. If we disagree with it, we really want to go to texts and understand and make our arguments from the text. Both, so both amillennialism and postmillennialism depend, as I said, on seeing Revelation 19 and Revelation 20 as referring not to two separate events, but as the exact same event. If exegesis demonstrates that Revelation 19 describes one battle before the millennial kingdom, while Revelation 20 describes another battle after the millennial kingdom, then get this, both systems fall apart and premillennialism is vindicated. Post-mills and mills will both say that, that that's true. In his commentary on Revelation, Doug Wilson admits this quite candidly. He says, to identify chapter 19 as the second coming helps set up chapter 20 with a premillennial understanding. If the second coming is in, se- in chapter 19 and the millennium is in chapter 20, well, there you go. When it comes to post-mill, remember it's a preterist position. That is, almost everything in Revelation, all the way up to Revelation 20, was fulfilled at the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. And this is a precarious position. It stands on very shaky ground. And unfortunately, we don't have time now to go into these details, but I'll just say this, that Jesus... Just Jesus provides an outline, and, and this is everybody agrees on this outline of his revelation to John. Revelation 1.19 says, Write therefore, and here's the, here's the outline for, for uh, John's revelation. Write there, therefore the things that you've seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. That's the book of Revelation. Three basic parts in the book of Revelation. Things you've seen, that's chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. 
It's everything John had written, had seen and written down. Those things that are, that's Revelation 2, 1 through 3, 22. That's Christ's letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And then that's a second section. And then a third section, this is the bulk of Revelation. Those things that are to take place after this. That's, that's everything from chapter four, verse one to 22, 21. And there's really no disagreement about that basic outline among these three eschatological positions. Now, the post-millennial division of Revelation sees everything from Revelation 4.1 to 1921 as having been fulfilled in 70 AD. And they break that section down into two parts. As far as I can tell, they see 4.1 to 1217 as Christ judging the Jews that persecuted the early church. And then 13.1 to 1921 as Christ judging the Romans that persecuted the early church. So Jews and Romans, Jews and Romans, it was all then culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So in this view, and, and for reasons more detailed than I'm able to get into now, they believe that Emperor Nero is the Antichrist, the beast, the man of lawlessness. And I was interested to read Greg Bonson's interpretation of identifying Nero with the man of sin and man of lawlessness or the Antichrist, the beast, um, in Revelation 13, 18 with the 666 formula. So here's what Greg Bonson says about 666. The beastly ruler is Nero. We're told this in Revelation 13, 18. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for that, for the number is that of a man and his number is 666. In ancient cultures, says Bonson, the letters of the alphabet often served as numerals so that every name would have its numerical equivalent. We read graffiti from Pompeii that says, I love her whose name is 545. That's a way of declaring your love. But then you had to figure out whose name adds up to 545. So we know what this is all about. If you use your mind, if you have wisdom, you can tell who John is talking about. His name equals 666. In the Talmud and in the Aramaic document that has been unearthed at Marabaat, we know that the Jews referred to Nero as Neron Kaiser. If you add up the numerical equivalent of the name the Jews use for Nero, it is 666. This is not all that hard a book to figure out, Bonson says. End quote. Maybe not, but that's what he just did there, which, you know, there, there is some warrant for that in different places, but it's called gematria. Bonson's gematria, you know, assigning letters to numbers, and that is valid in Hebrew, but it required some cleverness on his part for sure. Greg Bonson is brilliant. But in the scholarly standard resource, uh, Donald Guthrie's New Testament introduction, Guthrie cautions anyone from trying to play this gematria game and matching numbers with letters and figuring out the clues to identify the Antichrist, whether it's Kaiser or Hitler or, I remember when it was Ronald Reagan, Ronald Wilson Reagan, there's six letters in each one, so 666, or like this one, Nero. This is what uh, Guthrie says, many attempts were made to interpret this symbol in ancient times, but not until recent times has it ever been calculated on the basis of the Hebrew transcription of the name Nero Caesar, which in Hebrew enumeration makes a total of 666. But there are some difficulties here. Irenaeus discusses the identification, but assumes without question that the calculation must be done in Greek. Although he comes to no satisfactory conclusion, the author would hardly expect his Asiatic readers, remember those are the ones in Asia Minor, to understand a Hebrew cipher, end quote. Greg Bonson doing that with 666, that to me, and I'm not trying to poke fun at him here, 
I have learned so much from Greg Bonson, and I'll always be indebted, indebted to him for his presuppositional apologetic and interpreting Cornelius Van Til for us and to us. It's been so helpful. But isn't this what post-mills and ah-mills accuse premillennialists of doing? The same exact thing of assigning, you know, calling Ronald Reagan the Antichrist because we've, you know, calculated his number. It seems precarious. It seems not warranted. And not only that, but for an interpreter who emphasizes the highly symbolic nature of the book of Revelation, isn't it a bit consistent to all of a sudden get this literal on this particular point? I'm bringing this up because, not to poke fun at Greg Bonson, well, maybe a little, but, but just the real problem in identifying the beast as Nero and to maintain that position, they have to assign a very early date to the book of Revelation. That is sometime before the destruction of Jerusalem, so before AD 70. Now, you don't have to know too much or be a Christian for too long and read a Bible introduction to realize that the almost without exception position of the Christian church traditionally has been that Revelation was written in 90 to 95 AD. It is the final book of the Bible. It's the one that John wrote in exile on Patmos when Domitian, not Nero, but Domitian was emperor. Internal evidence is definitely not, not in favor or it's not conclusive on the dating, but it's definitely not in favor of an early date. If anything, it leans heavily in favor of a traditional 80, 90 to 95 date. What seals the case that the tr is about the traditional 80, 90 to 95 date is the external evidence. Every voice from the early church identifies the emperor in power when John wrote Revelation that it was Domitian and not Nero. Irenaeus, a disciple of Polycarp, and Polycarp was a direct disciple of John himself. He has a very authoritative voice since he's so near to that time. And he and every other church father, Jerome, Origen, all of them say, the Justin Martyr, all of them say, this is a, this is, Domitian was on the throne when John wrote Revelation. So there's some, there's some problems here. And, and um, when I go to Revelation 19 and 20, and when I go to this, this concept of the resurrection being spiritual only and using the term resurrection, when I looked up in my you know, Greek, Greek lexical resources and looked up the term anastasis, revelation, or um, I'm sorry, resurrection, resurrection is talking about physical bodily resurrection. I think there are some serious problems with those two uh, positions, even though we have many beloved brothers who hold them. Just to summarize, and then after this summary, we'll take a break. But uh, here's just a summary of the, of the three positions. And this is from the post-millennial author, J. Marcellus Kick. He says, the premillennialist believes the millennium will be ushered in after the second coming of Christ. The amillennialist believes there will not be a millennium upon earth and that the thousand year period refers to the intermediate state of the Christian soul in heaven. Postmillennialist believes the thousand year period is before the second coming of the Lord. So those, that's a summary and I think it's very clear. Both amillennial and postmillennial believe the second coming of Christ occurs after the millennium, even though each understands the nature of the millennium in radically different ways. Premillennial position is the only position that believes Christ is coming before the millennium, that he sets up a literal, physical, visible reign here on the earth before the millennium, he sets up the millennium, the millennial kingdom. He rules and reigns on earth visibly, physically over the restored kingdom of his father 
David, I believe there is very good evidence for taking the premillennial view. And at some point I will try to uh, persuade you of that, not tonight, uh, just for the sake of time. What we'll do when we come back in our next section, uh, we'll outline the premillennial view, the position that we as elders hold to and what we, how we teach our, uh, here in the church, okay?